All right. Well, it's good to be with the church this morning. We gather, even as we just sang, as a redeemed people. That's why we gather. We don't gather because we're bored on Sunday mornings. We don't gather because we all like to get up earlier on our weekends. We gather because we are redeemed and we want to worship our God together. And we need the body of Christ. So it is good to be here this morning. I hope that's your heart in this. You're just like, man, I am delighted to be with God's people, even when maybe my week was less than delightful. I get it, and so does God's word. If you're new with us this morning, we just want to welcome you. Uh, just We thank God for the newcomers that he brings to EGBC. Uh, there's a little connection card on uh, one of the back tables in the lobby. If you could grab one, fill it out, leave it on one of those tables in the lobby. We just want to serve you, pray for you, answer questions you have about the church. Um, and so we, we hope you feel welcome here this morning. Uh, we believe that God is doing great things here and we are praising him for what he's doing and excited for those he brings in to this body of believers. So we trust you'll be encouraged this morning. If you've been uh, coming for some time, you know that we're in Psalm 119. Um, and some of you may be very grateful to hear this morning, we're halfway through Psalm 119. All right, this is the halfway mark, and some of you may be like, oh my goodness, we're just halfway through. Uh, but hopefully others are just like, wow, this has been great. We're already halfway through. Um, but this morning uh, is a rich text in God's word, rich for reasons that you may not expect. So if you have a copy of God's word, and I hope you do, turn to Psalm 119, and we'll be in verse 81 to 88 this morning. In 1854, uh, Charles Spurgeon began pastoring in the city of London. Um, And by 1857, he was the most well-known preacher in the world. At 22 years old, he had crowds of 10,000 every Sunday. I mean, this this is when they had no microphones that were too loud. Um, He was preaching in the Metropolitan Tabernacle to crowds of 10,000 and they could hear him which is mind-blowing. In, in Spurgeon's pastor's college, as a funny side note, if you, didn't, if you couldn't talk loud enough, you weren't qualified to be a pastor uh, because he believed you had to be able to preach so that the masses could hear you. Um, a man used by God in his generation and in every generation since, um, his writings are still best-selling Christian books. Um, and if we could only have trans- or, um, audio of his preaching, he would be the best listened to preacher in the last two centuries. Um, however, one of the things that's less known about Spurgeon is he was a man who dealt with depression his entire life. He was a man plagued by just, just brokenness, the trials of life, the grief of life. And it, it would incapacitate, incapacitate him for months at a time. And, and we, we read about men like Spurgeon, if you've ever heard of him, or you might hear these grandiose stories and you think, wow, that guy just had it all together. And he would have said, no, no, I am a broken man. There's a book you may be interested in called Spurgeon's Sorrows. And it just, it's his journal with another man walking through of how to care for people in depression because Spurgeon's writing was so clear on how broken he was as a man who walked with God. Well, the reason I bring up Spurgeon this morning is that the lie is really loud. And here's the lie that is loud that we're tempted to believe. If I walk with God, I mean really walk with God, I really love God, if I really obey God, I'll suffer less and I'll be happier. 
that's the lie that we're tempted to believe. If I just, if I just love him more, if I stop sinning, my life will be easier. Now here's the truth. God is good and God's path for life is good. So there is a little bit of truth in that lie. When you walk with God, you don't experience the consequences of sin, right? The way of the transgressor is what? It's hard. So there is truth. The path of God is a good path. And some of us know that by our own experience. We've had seasons where we ran from God and we, we reaped those consequences. We've had seasons of walking with God and we say, I would rather walk with God any day because it's better to walk with God. But the lie is, is one that says, when I walk with him, my life will just be easy. The trials will fall away. And that is not what we see in God's word. What we see in God's word is that because we live in a fallen world, just straight up, life's gonna be hard. There's no way around it. There's no skirting the issue. Because we live in a fallen world plagued by sin, life will be hard. So you're here this morning and you're like, wow, that's a great way to start a sermon. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Debbie Downer. You know, now I'm so ready to go live my week. But here's, here's the issue. When the reality of suffering is ignored in the scriptures, it will have devastating consequences on all of your Christian experience. Let me say that again. When the reality of suffering is ignored in the scriptures or even maybe cleaned up and, and, and maybe even made to be a positive spin, it will have devastating consequences on all of your Christian experience. And we need to look deep into God's word this morning and, and recognize that suffering and despair is a part of the Christian experience. Here in Psalm 119, um, if you've been, again, coming for weeks, we've had almost five sermons dealing with, at some level, sorrow. He's been getting into the, the pain of his life, and then he's contrasting it with the goodness of God. And we've walked all through this, but... Truly, this morning, this is the lowest of lows. This is the midnight of Psalm 119. After this section, it really does get better. Verse 89, he turns a corner and it's like, boom! And he's explode for 10 more sections on the character of God and the sufficiency of the word of God. But at this point, it's, it's rock bottom. It's the pit of despair, if you will. And, and, this word, and the word of God is going to meet us right there and comfort us in that trouble. So let's read this once again together. Psalm 119, verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end to me on the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Let's pray once again. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we plead with you to meet us. Meet us right here in the text of your word in the pages of sacred scripture. Would your voice speak, even as Hebrews says, the word of God presently speaks today. 
So would you speak, Father? I do not know or pretend to know the trials going on by the faces represented in this room. But Lord, I know that every person here is either in a time of suffering, recovering from a time of suffering, or about to go into a time of suffering, because that's the nature of life. And we long for the day when, when, when suffering is no more. But right now, this is, this is where we live. And so would your word meet us and would you minister to us in a kind and gracious way this morning and in Christ's name, amen. The big idea that I hope is captured this morning is this, despair makes you long for God's delivering grace. The reality of despair makes us long for God's delivering grace. Grace. So we're going to break this up this morning into three parts, and we're not going to walk right through the psalm. I'm going to jump around because the psalmist, again, in poetry, he's going all over the place. And so verse 83 sounds like 87, and we're just going to navigate through this, I think, covering all of this passage this morning. The first thing we see is the reality of despair. Just the unescapable, unavoidable reality, life is hard. Verse 83 in verse 83 to 87 is where we find this point. Particularly, we're going to notice first verse 84. Look at the line there where he says, how long must your servant endure? Here we see despair is the result of prolonged suffering. Prolonged suffering. Some of us have gone through affliction in life that's momentary. And I'm not minimizing momentary affliction. But you know, something that lasts a few days, a few weeks, maybe even a few months. And it's hard. It's life-shaping. And I remember times in my life where God, for whatever reason, chose to put me in a moment of suffering. But that's different than what we see here. This is the idea of like lifelong suffering. Like the people that it's just, well, I was born with chronic pain and I die with chronic pain. Right? Lifelong suffering. It, it pushes you to despair. And now none of us are like jumping for that. Like, oh yeah, I want to I wanna be a lifelong sufferer. But it's just the reality. Oh, we, we, try to, we try to be happy or positive. We might take medications to numb it. But at the end of the day, seasons of suffering are different than momentary sufferings. And here the psalmist is resonating with these seasons of suffering. How long? Your Bible might say, how many are my days? He's actually questioning God. How long do I have to live? Like, I really, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, life right now, it'd be better not to live. That's the, that's the extent of my pain. And, and he's, it's interesting that, that this suffering produces such deep questioning. Not questioning that points your finger at God, but questions of God, really? How long is this gonna go on? It's interesting that here in this psalm, we see a few statements of, and I think we can conclude that questioning God is not a sign of immaturity or rebellion. Sometimes we get that. That's, that's how Christians talk. Oh, if you question God, you know, you're in sin. Well, I think it's, it's, it's how you question God. He's not pointing his finger at God and saying, God, how dare you? He's not pulling a Job's wife and saying, curse God and die. He's simply saying, God, I don't know if I can live much longer like this. I know, and he's gonna tell us what he knows about God. He knows God is good. He knows God is merciful. He knows God is gracious. But at the end of the day, in his humanity, he is saying, God, I don't know how long I can live like this. 
So here it's, it's a cry of faith. It's a, it's a cry of deep-seated faith in God, but also an admission that God, if you don't do something, I don't know if I'm gonna make it. This is not a God, I'm gonna take my life statement. It's a God, I just don't know where else to go because I am so beaten down. And it's interesting where he, where this trial is coming from. If you go on in verse 84, he says, when will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent, the proud, the wicked, they have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. The end of verse 86, they persecute me with falsehood and lies. Here we see that his sorrow, his despair is because of actually here what I call intentional suffering. People that just hate God are out for him. That's a reality, isn't it? Now, some of us haven't experienced that, but others have. Family members who just hate God and hate you because you love God. And, and it's, there's no reason around it. I mean, you've bent over backwards to love your family and they just smear you with lies. And you're like, God, really, Why? Like, I'm just walking with you. Or it could, be, it could be family, it could be work, it could be peers that just, you know, loved you at one time, but now, oh man, their greatest joy is seeing you slip up and run from God because they are running from God. And so the psalmist is suffering because of those who are disregarding his God. And it's interesting that I think that's a reality, but in this, we also see the implication that you're gonna suffer just because you live in a world that doesn't love God. So it could be intentional. It could just be intentional by default that there's a world that hates God and you're choosing to swim upstream. And so every branch and log and piece of debris is gonna smack you and hit you and beat you, and you're gonna feel like, God, all I'm doing is trying to live for you, and I'm just getting hammered by a world that rejects you. And this is what I, I think is just suffering because we, we live in a fallen world. If we went back to Genesis 3, 14 to 19, we see that God, God's cursing the world. God said, if you sin, there's gonna be consequence. Well, Adam and Eve sinned, and guess what? God wasn't lying, and now there's massive consequence. And that consequence is far reaching. I mean, can you imagine a world where work was sweet? Because, you know, work isn't a part of the curse. Do you know that? Work was a pre Genesis 3 construct of God. But because of sin, guess what? Work is miserable. And God told Adam that. There's going to be, now, I mean, in an agricultural society, you're now going to have to farm and fight the land. It's just not going to bring forth fruit. You're going to have to make it bring forth fruit. And that, that, that effect goes down in everything, right? He says in marriage, hey, Eve, guess what? Before your marriage would have been perfect, now you're going to be at odds with your husband. Like it, the fallenness of our world affects everything. And so we see that in disease and physical hardship. For some of us, when we talk about sorrow, you immediately go to, God, you have plagued my body with pain. And, and, you, and you just say, we live in a fallen world. And therefore, we are gonna experience suffering. Some of us, we experience pain and suffering because of the sinful choices of others. Families that sinned against us, parents that sinned against us, spouses that sinned against us. And we just go, wow, God, my life has been a wreck because of the sin of other people. And it destroys me. 
Well, there's also, we live in a fallen world. And so maybe we just were despairing because of the consequences of our own choices. Where we just say, God, I, I, I know that I'm redeemed, but I, I sowed my wild oats for decades. And now I'm reaping the pain of those, those wild oats. And God, oh, the agony of my pain is so prevalent in all of my life. So here the psalmist is saying there's, there is suffering. For, for the psalmist here, it is because of evil who are after him, intentionally after him. And for us, it may be that, and it may just be we live in a fallen world. What I find is interesting is that in verse 85, he says the wicked have dug pitfalls. That's the idea of a trap. And I think we've been there. Just unintentionally trapped by sin. You're just living your life, doing your thing, and there's a pit that's dug for you, and it's like, boom, (laughs) what happened? We live in a fallen world, and sin is all around us, and these traps are set for us everywhere we turn. And so the psalmist says, oh, Lord, my despair is great because I live in a fallen world, and there are people who hate you, and I'm trying to walk with you, and they're out for me. If the psalmist was David, well, we know what was happening in his life. I mean, the king, Saul, is after him for decades trying to kill him. This is, this is a really hostile situation, right? I mean, he's living in caves and he's running and he's constantly in misery. Come on, God. Like the evil, they're after me. As I've said before, maybe the psalmist was Daniel and we know what happened to him. Let's lie about him. Let's get, let's get the king to believe a lie so that Daniel can be fed to the lions. That's just one instance that we know of Daniel's life. They're out for me, God. I live in a fallen world and life is hard. But go back to 83 because here's where we see kind of a climactic imagery, if you will, of the reality of our suffering. I mean, yes, yes, he's prolonged in his suffering. Yes, there's a variety of circumstances that produce suffering. But look at what he says in verse 83. For I have become like a wineskin or maybe a, a translation we understand as a skin bottle in the smoke. Here is one of the most vivid pictures of despair in all the scriptures. So we don't understand wineskin very well. Um, before you had like Nalgene bottles, okay? Before you had like plastic water bottles, they would make water bottles out of things that could hold water. Well, here in this time, 3,000 years ago, they would take skin, they would sew it together. And they would sew it so tightly that it would hold water, okay? Like, like you, it just makes sense, right? Leather, it can hold it if, you, if it's thick enough. And so they would do this for their carrying water uh, across a desert land. Well, what happens to the leather when it gets dried out? It cracks. It's no longer able to hold water. And so the psalmist says, I feel like that skin bottle hanging in my tent that's been over the fire too long. And it is, and here's the point. It's useless. It's hopeless. It has one fate and that is to be thrown away. It's no longer worth anything. And he says, God, in my sorrow, this is how I feel. And as I'm just meditating on that this week, I'm thinking to myself, have we been there? Are you there right now? It's like, God, I really, I mean, everybody maybe in this room thinks I'm happy-go-lucky. But when I close the door of my house, I'm a wreck. I feel like a wineskin in the smoke. I feel useless, like I'm no good to humanity. 
I feel helpless. I don't even know which way is up and which way is down. I don't know what is right and what is wrong. I am just miserable. I was like, I love that God's word says this stuff because he doesn't present us with a happy-go-lucky faith. He said, this is, a, this is an author of sacred scripture, a man that loved God dearly saying, God, I feel so broken right now, so entirely dried up. In verse 87, he compliments what he says in 83. They have almost made an end to me on the earth. I love the almost because he's gonna find hope in God. And so it's not done. But he is, they've almost made a complete end to me on the earth. My hopelessness has reached an extent that I feel like there's no reason to live. It's interesting, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, for no trial, temptation, struggle, suffering, all of those words fit, has come to you, but that which is what? Common to man. You know the lie that we're tempted to believe in our deepest sorrows? What is it? I'm the only one. Nobody understands. Right? Nobody really gets me. Nobody understands what I'm going through. We have what I like to call an Eeyore syndrome, right? Just moping through life because nobody really gets it. I don't say that to make fun of our suffering this morning. I say that to say you're in good company. That's the point. Like we can go to the word of God and say, oh God, I, there's hope. I'm not the only one. The sorrow that I'm in, oh my the details of my suffering may look different than so-and-so's. But at the end of the day, like, I'm not unique. There's no sorrow, there's no trial, there's no temptation, but that which is common to man, and how does the verse keep going? But God is faithful, right? So, okay, Lord, you're faithful. I'm gonna turn to you because right now, I'm tempted to believe the lie that, that nobody really knows what I'm going through. And here the psalmist says, I feel like I'm entirely hopeless, helpless. In my Bible, I have five or six words next to this verse. Hopeless, discouraged, worn out, broken, wearied by life, and useless. That's what he's telling us. I have all of these emotions happening right now in my heart. And just as a side note, in in this section of this psalm, there's no evidence that God has delivered him. He's not writing after it's all over. He's not saying, oh, praise God, you've delivered me. He's saying, this is where I'm at right here, right now. I feel hopeless and in utter despair. So I think it's good for us to to stop there this morning on this idea of despair and really be okay with the fact that because we live in a fallen world, despair is a reality, right? Even in our society, we don't like to admit that, do we? I mean, we like to clean it all up. We call it saving face. I'm gonna look good, talk good, be smooth in front of you. Oh, I might find my satisfaction in a bottle when I go home, but you're never gonna know it, right? Because I'm gonna act like everything's okay. I'm gonna put my happy face on when I walk into church so that everybody thinks that I'm, I'm really doing well today. Brothers and sisters, it is okay 
to admit despair. I don't know where to turn. I need the Lord. I'm not running. Despair doesn't mean you're running from God. Despair simply means life is hard. And if, if there's any place that's safe, it should be here. That we can just say, you know what, how you doing? I'm not well. This, is, this has been one of the hardest seasons of my life. Like that would be, wouldn't that be great? If that was the, the transparency that could happen here because we don't, we don't live in the lie that life has to be happy-go-lucky. We live in the reality that we're in a broken world. And there's times where we just need, hey, can, you know what, you can pray for me because I'm, I'm not doing well. And I need abundant grace. It doesn't mean that we spill our guts in every person that we see. But it means that we don't have to, we don't have to believe the lie. And we can just say, you know what, I'm having a Psalm 1981 moment. Maybe I'm having years of Psalm 1981. But as we see here, we still know that God is faithful and good and we can turn to him. So despair makes you long for delivering grace. And if you don't recognize the reality of despair, you'll never long for grace. And so it's important to recognize this morning that because of the world we live in, we will know despair, just like the psalmist knows despair. Well, let's look at point number two. Actually, he starts off with an 81 and 82. Here we see the longing for delivering grace. He's just gonna, he's gonna start this off with the longing for grace, partly because he's been writing about his own tragic sorrow for the last five sections. So in his mind, he's still rehearsing sorrow, wickedness, suffering, and 81 and 82 flow right out of that theme. It's interesting though that what we see here in verse 81 and 82 is that the psalmist longs for only the deliverance that grace could give. He's gonna go right to the fountain of grace and say, I only want deliverance if it's from God. And that's really important because there's a lot of fake promises for hope. A lot of phony, this will make you happy promises. A lot of pseudo lookalikes that maybe if I go down this road, I'll be happy. And that's true in our day. And it was true in the psalmist day. And he says, I'm going to go to the one place where I know there's abundant grace. And that is God and God alone. So look at verse 81. We're going to do 81a and 82a. Okay. Because he actually repeats himself in 81 and 82. Pleading for salvation because you know the word of God. Look at 81. My soul longs for your salvation the same word in 82, my eyes long for your promise. Well, how does, how does he know salvation is from God? Well, because he knows the promises of God. Do you see the connection? He longs for salvation because he longs for God to fulfill his promises. Well, what are the promises? <laughs> promises of salvation, promises of deliverance. So it's vital that we know the promises of God. So I have a question for you this morning. Do you know about the word of God or do you know the word of God? There's a big difference. I think we have a Christian culture in America that we know a lot about the word of God. But we don't really know the word of God. So just, just start reading. Well, actually don't. Don't read those books. Just like listen to conversations about what people say and they try to put a Christian spin on it. And you're like, I don't think that's in your Bible. Right? We talked about this at our men's group on Tuesday night. Let go and let God theology. It sounds okay until you actually apply the Bible to it. It's statements like God helps those who help themselves. Sounds good until you open your Bible and realize you can't help yourself. 
right? I mean, there's so many of these little phrases that are thrown around in Christianity that you're like, you don't know, that's not from this book. But you know what? We do that in our own lives. You hear people give you know, counsel to a Christian friend. Well, you know, you're having a hard day. Just go take some me time. Go self-indulge in selfishness. See how that goes for you. No, 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 you don't need me time. You need God time. You need to go to the word of God and open this book and say, I need this book. I need the God of this book to bathe my soul, not just to go be selfish for a day. You know, I had godly people tell me before, well, when you're having a bad day, your family needs to know that they just need to leave you alone when you come home. No, I need to walk in the spirit and die to my sin. And when I walk in my front door, be ready to love my family like Christ loves the church, right? Not, hey, stay away from daddy, he had a bad day. Give him an hour. That's not, see, you see, there's things that we think, oh, that's, there might be biblical, Pete, no, it's, it's not true. And we need to know the promises of scripture or you're gonna be begging God to do things that God has already said he won't do. You're like, God, what are you doing? I, I'm asking you, well, you're, you're asking wrongly because you're not asking based on the word of God. And so the psalmist says, I long for your deliver." The word salvation is the word deliverance. God, deliver me based on what I know about you because I know you're that kind of God. And we're gonna see at the very end even why he asks for that. Because so often we ask for deliverance simply because we want an easier life. That goes back to, do you know the promises of scripture? Because that's not where you go. It's not just God make my life happy. It's gonna be radically different than that. So we must know the promises of the word if we're gonna plead the promises of the word. And so that's where we just need to plea for salvation. This word for longing, my eyes are longing. The idea here is actually my eyes are weeping or my eyes, you may have a King James version, are failing. The idea that I have looked so hard after God that I, I'm, I'm blind with my own tears is the imagery here. I have looked until I can look no more and guess what I keep doing? I keep pressing into God. I keep leaning in to God. You know, a friend of mine um, in Southern California, his wife is dying of cancer. She's in her 50s and, and so she has a very aggressive form of cancer. And, and so, you know, what's interesting is that even though the cancer is ravaging her body, they're not stopping every, every form of treatment. They're not just saying, oh, well. It's like, no, we want you to live. And, and, and now as, as it gets worse, they're going harder after the disease, right? Because we want to cure it. That's the idea here. In our sorrow, in our agony, don't check out. God, I'm gonna lean harder into you than I've ever leaned into you. I've got no crutch to lean on anymore and I'm leaning on God. One of my favorite uh, visuals for this was, you know, in, when life is easy, I might lean on God like I lean on this podium. But as life gets harder, I'm leaning, right? I'm leaning, I'm leaning. And I'm leaning to the point that if that podium falls, what's happening to me? I'm, I'm falling over. Right, that's, that's the idea of the psalmist. I'm at the point, God, that I am like leaning on you and I can't go nowhere else. I'm pressing in to God. And this is so key, brothers and sisters, because when we hit moments of despair, that's typically when we come up with excuses to run after our own things. So in our moment of weakness and despair and sorrow, 
we, we, you know, life's just hard, brother. So I turned to this. I'm going after this, this pill, this substance, this hobby, this thing, because my life, you just don't understand my life. And the sorrow of life is no excuse to run after our own devices, our own constructs that cannot satisfy. And if we, if we don't know the promises of the word, if we don't know the God of the word, guess what? You will go after what you think will provide comfort, only to find out it doesn't. And then you'll go to the next thing, thinking it provides comfort, and it doesn't. And the psalmist here, in his misery, starts off with these two statements, my soul longs for you, and my eyes faint with weeping for your promise. I am pressing into my God and pleading with you, because I can go nowhere else. That's what we see here. But let's get verse the end of 81 and 82. He wants hope in the word. He wants hope in the word and he wants comfort in the word. So he asked God for deliverance based on his promises, but it's really, he's going one step further. I want hope. You see, when trials hit, when suffering is a reality, when the pain of life is pressing on you, isn't it a really, like it's an unstable place to be. There's no stability in life. I mean, it's just, you feel like you're wobbling and you don't, you're, again, you're just like, I don't know up from down. Lord, I just want to have a steadfast, confident hope. That's what we want. We want hope in sorrow. And so the psalmist is saying, I'm, I'm weary. I'm weakened. I'm, I'm, I'm tottering. But I want the hope that God alone gives. Because you see, trials remind us that we simply don't have the answers. Don't they? I mean, trials remind me of how needy I actually am. In my pride, I like to think that I'm pretty self-sufficient. Don't you? I mean, it's just, I like, being honest here, that's where I go. I'm self-sufficient. I, I can use my own intellect. I can use my own strength and power, and I'll see how far it gets me. And then it's like, boom. And God just, he sends something in my life to say, Schroeder, really? How self-sufficient are you? And in that moment, I'm like, okay, Lord, thank you. I'm not self-sufficient. You are the only all-sufficient, self-sufficient being in the universe, and I desperately need you. And this is where the psalmist goes. He says, God, I'm not self-sufficient. I don't have the answers, so I need hope from you and hope from your word. And in trials, we need something to tie our boat to the dock. We need something that's unmovable, that we know will endure to say, this is a steadfast anchor for my soul. And I can, I can rest on this. And I love what the psalmist says. He, he actually, it's a, it's a desperate cry in verse 82. When will you comfort me? This is really precious. Again, he's not questioning God. He knows the character of God. And he's saying, God, I know you're a God of comfort. I know you're a God of grace. I just, I'm not feeling it. So God, when will you do it for me? Like, and it's not, it's not how dare you not do this for me. It's a God, I need you to do this for me. Like I need you to be my comfort right here, right now in the, the pain of my life. Be a God of comfort. And so he actually, this is a command in the Hebrew language. God, comfort me. Do it. I know it's who you are. And you're pleading with him to comfort you. 
So we have despair in life and despair pushes us to the God of grace. But here we're gonna see finally a, a, a demand for truth in despair. A demand for truth. So this Psalm, as I'm working through it this week, is literally blowing my mind because he is in the depth of despair and you can just see it in the grief dripping from this text. And there's so many statements of profound truth. I mean like over and over and over. And he stumbles on top of himself to tell you about the character of his God. And what you see is that in the middle of his agony, he knows what his soul needs. Remember God, remember God. So even though he is wearied by life, he is pressing into what the, the one thing he knows he needs, the character of his God. And so we need to look at that this morning. And so we're gonna, we're gonna look at five things that God hopes we will do when we're suffering, all right? That's, the, that's how we're gonna finish up this morning in this demand for truth in the midst of sorrow. Because you see, sorrow is going to always push you to something. Are you walking with, are you tracking here? It's going to push you. So when life is easy, I, I, can, I can say, yeah, God is good. I love God. Praise God. I can, all that good stuff. When life is hard, it proves what I really trust in. Because it pushes me somewhere. It pushes me to, I'm going to find hope in something. So maybe, this had never, I'm sure this is none of you, but maybe you've known somebody that when sorrow comes, there's like a particular hobby they go to. You know what I mean? It's just like, man, yeah, they, this, this person went through the loss of a loved one, and so, boom, they're out on the boat. It's where they go for hope. It's, you know, they, they just got their thing, they go do it, and in a while they'll come back, and that's how they cope right? Or maybe for some, again, like I mentioned, it's a substance. Sorrow comes and old addictions come back. It's like, you know what? I'm going to go down this path and God, I know this isn't right, but I'm going to do it for a while because I don't know how to cope with life. And what you're really saying in that moment is this is what I actually trust in when life is hard. I go down this path when life is hard. God, you're good when life is easy, but when life is hard, you're not enough. And I've got something else I go to. So sorrow is going to always push us in some direction. And the psalmist is going to give us several things that God desires of us in the midst of sorrow. And the first thing we see is that this despair, the psalmist is knowing, it demands a confident resolve in God. A confident resolve in God. And now when I use the word resolve, it's kind of a strange word um, because we're a culture without many resolves. Because we're a culture without many convictions. When you're a, man, when you're a person of conviction, you have resolve. If you don't have conviction, you don't have resolve. So here we see the psalmist with a steadfast resolve. Listen to some of these statements in Psalm. This is again, remember, deep-seated sorrow. Listen to these statements in, in this section. 81b, I hope in your word. 82a, my eyes long for your promise. 83b, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. 86a, all your commandments are sure. 87b, but I have not forsaken your precepts. That doesn't sound like a person suffering. That sounds like somebody like absolutely confident. Like somebody, I got this one. 
But no, that's not what's happening at all. It's somebody beaten by sorrow. And he's over and over preaching truth to his soul. Did you get that? Preaching truth to your soul. You see, truth doesn't remove suffering. It just gives us hope through it. That's the point. And so the psalmist is saying, I'm in the reality of life right now is it stinks. But truth is gonna preserve me through it. So this ship will make it through the storm because it is grounded on God's truth. Can I ask you a question here this morning? Do you listen to yourself in sorrow or do you preach to yourself in sorrow? Do you believe the lies like I deserve better than this? Isn't that a good lie? or even other people, it even gets better in our world that people say this, you deserve better than this. Um, not to be mean, but what we all deserve is hell for eternity, separated from God forever. So, so you don't deserve better than this, right? Now God is full of grace and mercy and we praise him for that, but don't believe that lie that I deserve better than this. Because when you buy that lie, you're gonna jump out of the ship thinking you can find a better one only it's gonna lead you to more misery and more pain and more suffering, right? So the lies, again, they're loud. And we believe those things like I deserve better than this or I, I can just start over. If I just ignore these problems, if I start over, it'll get better. And these lies swirl in our heads. And what we hear in the psalmist is we hear him shoving out lies by preaching truth. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the most important Christian habits you could ever establish. Preaching truth to your soul. Do you know that when temptation hits me, in that moment of temptation, if I don't start preaching truth to my soul, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna believe it. I'm gonna believe that I'm justified in my anger because my two-year-old acted like a two-year-old. Right? In that moment, I'm gonna believe the lie as opposed to speaking truth in that moment. And that we could apply that to something as silly as spilling milk and as serious as some of the greatest struggles we face. In that moment, I'm either gonna believe the lie or I'm gonna say, no, no, God, your word is truth. I'm gonna believe your word and I'm gonna go after your word and I'm gonna press in to your word. And so when we are in despair, we must have a confident resolve in God this steadfastness of the soul that is unshakable. You think of something that's this like impossible, impenetrable fortress. And he says, that's me with my God. I shall not be shaken. The mature child of God is not rocked away from his savior in the storms of life. He becomes closer to his savior in the storms of life. And we know that even by practical experience, that it is through the tragedy and the sorrow and the despair, if we walk through it by faith, or we look back and we say, wow, God, you used that sorrow to transform me in the image of Jesus, right? So when we are in despair, we need to have a confident resolve in God. Well, the second thing we see of these five is that in our despair, We must be absolutely dependent upon God. Verse 86, this is a strange statement in Psalm 119 because again, this is poetry. 
This is flowing all pretty in the Hebrew language. And at the end of verse 86, there is a statement that should be punctuated by an exclamation mark at the end of that verse in your Bible. And it says this, help me. Like he's just cruising through Psalm 119, boom, help me. And you're like, what? Where's that coming from? Well, it's coming from a heart that is just devastated with life. It's coming from a person at the bottom of the pit and all they can do is look up and they say, God, I know you're there. Would you help me? Like, I I don't have a rope. I don't have a ladder. I can't climb out on my own, but oh, do I need you? And so this is, this is just what I call raw emotion. Not emotional. He's not being controlled by his emotions, but it's the raw emotion of his agony. And what I love is, get this, he's not running from God, nor is he blaming God, but he's running to God. And so he goes straight to the one that he knows can provide hope and provide help. And he shouts with an exclamatory, imperatival command, God, help me. I desperately need you. And this goes back that it slaps us in the face with our self-sufficiency. You think you're a self-made man? You're not. You think you, are, you think you've got life by the tail? You don't. You think you can make it for a while without me? You can't. And as we've talked over and over already in Psalm 119 and reference with Hebrews 12, God is a good father and he loves his children and he disciplines us in love and he is gonna draw him to himself. And one of the chief ways this good God draws us to himself is he puts us in the pressure cooker of despair. And in that man pressure cooker, we're like, get me out, get me out, get me out. And it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And, and we really are, are like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like we're in the fire. It's like, if Jesus doesn't show up, we're done. That's it. We need, we need a savior. God help me. And you know what was just precious to my soul this week was thinking that isn't this how the Christian life begins? At that moment when you embrace the gospel, you come to a point of utter hopelessness, realizing you cannot get to heaven by any of your own strength, that you are a wreck on your own, a sinner apart from God. And what do you cry out? God help me. God save me. God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's just the cry of the Christian life. That's where God wants us every day. God help me. God, I don't have it together today. God, I need you. And if, that's, if you're a child of God this morning and you've come to Christ in faith, you know what that looks like. You know what it looks like to just realize I am in desperate need of a savior. And then God, for the rest of your life, wants us to stay right there. I'm in desperate need of a savior. And the suffering of life puts us right back at ground zero. It puts us right back at the foundation of our faith. God, help me. So despair demands dependence. Number three, despair should push you and I to remember God's character. Despair should push us to the character of God. Because you see, in our sorrow, the character of God is the constant. It's the unchanging. It's the Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. And so we're like, <laughs> kind of like the, she loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. Isn't that how life is? It's a good day. It's a bad day. It's a good day. It's a bad, I mean, it's just like, we can go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And it can happen in an instant. It can happen with a phone call. And it can be like, 
Life is great. Oh, I'm broken. And here the psalmist is gonna come back in verse 88, the character of God. Look at verse 88. In your steadfast love, in your abundant mercy. It's interesting here. He doesn't ask for the mercy, which he's already done. He simply says, God, I know enough about you to know this. You're a God abounding in steadfast love. You're a God full of goodness. It is who you are. And so he runs right to it. And the character of God is the foundation for his plea. So he doesn't say, hey, God, give me a break here. He doesn't say, God, I've been really good. I mean, since this whole thing started, I've gone to church. I've read my Bible. I've prayed more. I've evangelized. I mean, God, I'm like a plus Christian today. So because of what I'm doing, I mean, don't we do that though? Okay, God, I'll be better. And when I be better, you'll solve my problems. You'll make my life easier. He doesn't go to his own merit. He doesn't go to his commitment to God. He just goes to the character of God. And he says, God, this is who you are. And you're an unchanging God. And right now my circumstances don't feel so good. But you're good. And I'm gonna run to you. And I'm gonna cry out to you based on your character. It is in those moments, the deep despair moments, that the steadfast love of God becomes an experiential reality like never before. You actually know the goodness of God. You're like, you know what? When, when life is good and the bills are paid and relationships are all great, yeah, God is good. But what about when all that falls apart? And I'm like, God, I know you're good. And I, there's, a, there's an experiential knowing of God that hits you when you're like, everything else fell apart, but this remained. Everything else is by the wayside, but God, you're unchanging. And so he goes to the character of God. And I think God's design for suffering is to push us to him, to push us to the character of our unchanging and all good, all gracious God. And then in verse 88, we see one more piece of this puzzle the fourth part of what sorrow should do. And it's that despair should not just cause us to remember God, but it should cause us to cling to God for life. I mean, look at what he says. I, in your steadfast love, right, that's the character. And he then says, give me life. I've said before in Psalm 119, despair sucks life out of life. You just feel like a shell. Like life is hopeless, miserable. What am I doing? He's already painted that picture. I'm like a wineskin in the smoke. They've almost made an end to me. It sucks the life out of life. And he says here that there is a God who he created life and he sustains life. And he's the giver of abundant life and eternal life. And so I'm gonna go to him for life. Life worth living. Again, we just have to contrast that with our society that says, oh, here's how you really live. You know, my wife and I got married pretty young. Uh, we were 21. And we had people tell us, why, why are you getting married so young? Not, not Christians, mostly unbelievers. And they would say things like this, why don't you go live a little? Go have fun. And then later on, tie yourself down. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think God's way is better. But doesn't our world have a whole bunch of ideas for how to really live? 
I mean, this will make you happy. If you just look like this, you'll be happy. If you just drive this, you'll be happy. If you live here, you'll be happy. If you're, and the list could go on and on. And brothers and sisters, we're tempted to buy into that. Okay, this is, this is how I'll get a better life. I'll be a happier life. And the psalmist here says, Lord, give me life. Because if I don't get it from you, it ain't happening. It doesn't exist apart from God. Oh, we can try to clean it up and we can try to make our facades look pretty, but at the end of the day, it's a lie. If life doesn't come from God and God alone, then what are we doing? And so here the psalmist clings to God and he pleads to God for life. He knows, as we've already referenced previously, that this is the God who fashioned him in verse 73. He knows that God gave him creative life beginning life. Now he says, give me sustaining life. Help me to live in such a way that is truly living for you. And that's clear because of the end of verse 88. I told you earlier on that the psalmist pleads for salvation, but not just to be happy. Well, 88, he answers the question. Here we see the fifth part of the design of sorrow. He says this, God, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Here we see that deliverance is for the purpose of living for God. That's where the psalmist goes. He doesn't go to a prosperity theology and say, God bless me because I wanna be happy. He doesn't go towards a path of least resistance. He says, Lord, would you give me life? Would you restore to me life? Because I want to live for the glory of God. I want to live to follow and obey you. So as I wrestled with this this week, I think the reason he says this is is this. Sorrow and despair become a distraction and a burden to living for God. It just weighs you down. You feel like I, I, I don't have the ability to live for God like I ought. Now maybe in your sorrow and despair, God's teaching you how to live for him, right? He's teaching you to run to him, but you just feel weighted down. Like, God, I just, I don't have the joy. I don't have the energy. I don't have the strength. I don't have the mental bandwidth. I'm really struggling to live for you. God, would you deliver me so that I could? I want to live with unfetteredness for your glory. I don't want to be bound to anything. I want to live for you. So the ultimate longing is to live more fully for the glory of God. And why should we be surprised? Because what's the theme of Psalm 119? Verse nine, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. What's the psalmist longing all along for? To live for the glory of God. So that's his heartbeat. He wants more than anything to walk with his God. And he feels like the sorrow of life is is hard for him to walk with God like he should. And he says, God, would you save me? Would you deliver me? Would you comfort me? Would you give me hope? Would you give me life? because I want to live for you. That's where I want to go. I want to live for God. So brothers and sisters, despair should push us towards delivering grace because we want to live for the glory of God. So as we come to a conclusion this morning, some of you are kind of thankful that we're just done talking about despair. All right, some of you are like, whew, we got that done, at least for a while. But you know what I really believe? I believe that most of us, if not all of us, are thankful that God's word has met us head on where we are. It's met us right in the reality of life is not easy. Sorrow is real. Agony is real. Despair is real. And God is right there. 
And he is there to care deeply and profoundly for his children. And so we're comforted in the stories of men like Spurgeon, men who desperately loved God and seriously and sincerely walked with God and yet they struggled with despair and depression. Spurgeon wrote this, the road to sorrow has been well traveled. It is the regular sheep track to heaven and all the flock of God, God have passed along its way. I mean, isn't that where we are? This road to sorrow is well-traveled. It is the, the regular sheep track. That's us. We're sheep. It's the sheep track to heaven. And we've all passed along its way. And so I would not claim to know your sorrows this morning, but I would claim to know who God who does know them. Right? And I love that God's word cuts for all of us in every direction. It's not monodimensional. Like, oh, well, if you have this problem, the word of God will apply to you. No, no, it's, do you know despair, regardless of how it comes? Well, guess what? There's a God of abundant mercy and abundant grace who longs to meet you in that need and care more profoundly for you than you could ever imagine. A God who longs to bring comfort to those without comfort and a God who longs to bring hope to the hopeless. So it comes back to this. Are we willing to run to him and cast ourselves at his feet and say, God, I'm done running after every other fake phony lie that says it will give life and I'm gonna lean in to you and I'm gonna press into you and find you good and find you gracious and full of steadfast love. Let's pray. Father, would you do that this morning? Would you do that here at EGBC? Would you help us to be a church that doesn't ignore the reality of sorrow but a church that embraces that we live in a fallen world because of sin and therefore we will know suffering. Oh, but we have a God that we can run to and a God that is full of steadfast love and grace. And Father, as we finish this morning, I wanna pray particularly for those who are going through deep sorrow and despair even this morning. Even coming here today was a trial. Would you minister to your people, Lord? Would you care for the brokenhearted? And would they find you to be a God who is full of steadfast love, who gives life? And we'll praise you. In Christ's name, amen.